Thank you, Thomas, for that lovely introduction and for all of your incredible work. And thank you to Kenny, Nina, and Bioneers on this 20th anniversary of the conference. We are so pleased to be here. What I'm about to say should come as no surprise to the people in this room. Our planet is dying, and our communities are dying along with it. By most every measure, the environment today is in worse shape than when the major US environmental laws were adopted over 30 years ago. Since then, countries around the world have replicated these laws, yet species are disappearing, the climate is on fire, rainforests are being destroyed, global fisheries are collapsing, and coral reefs are being wiped out. Clearly, something isn't working. The Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund was founded in 1995 to help communities protect the natural environment by stopping new incinerators, factory hog farms, and other projects. We helped communities appeal to their state environmental agencies to stop them, but what we found was that the very agencies we looked to for help were instead handing out permits to corporations to build those incinerators and factory farms. We helped hundreds of communities appeal these corporate permits, but by even when we won, we lost, because the corporations would either rewrite the law or exhaust communities with permit application after permit application until they could cite their project. What our experience showed us was that our system of environmental laws and regulations don't actually protect the environment. At best, they merely slow the rate of its destruction. After several years, we stopped doing that work. We weren't helping anyone protect anything. And our work has now fundamentally changed. And over the past few years, we've had a chance to work with folks like Michael Vaca, a construction worker from Western Pennsylvania who wanted to protect his community from coal mining. Like Jack O'Neill, a Vietnam veteran and select board member from Barnstead, New Hampshire, who wanted to stop the privatization of his community's water. Like Alberto Acosta, former president of the Constitutional Assembly of Ecuador, who'd seen his country ravaged by multinational oil corporations. Three people facing three seemingly different problems who found that they couldn't protect the places where they live because the environmental laws that they looked to for help seemed to have very little to do with actually protecting the environment. Our work with those communities all began with a phone call. In 2006, our phone rang with a call from Michael Vaca. Now, Michael is grizzled in a way you might expect of someone who spent the past 30 years outside pouring concrete. He lives in the tiny rural township of Blaine in western Pennsylvania, deep in the heart of coal country. Blaine's population wouldn't even fill half this auditorium. Over the past two decades, communities across western Pennsylvania have been devastated by something called longwall coal mining. Mining corporations drive their longwall machines underground, ripping out massive panels of coal over two miles long. When the coal is gone, the land above is unsupported and caves in. Houses, roads, schools, farmland all fall into the mine. Rivers and streams run dry. Michael wanted to stop the mining, but had seen other communities fight and lose their battles to stop it. 
As vice chair of Blaine's planning commission, he wanted to see if he could use local zoning laws to block the mining. But instead, he found himself stuck inside a box. That same box that thousands of communities across the country have found themselves stuck in, in which the law doesn't give them the legal authority to say no. That first call with Michael lasted two hours. And at the end, he invited us to hold a democracy school in Blaine. The democracy schools are three-day workshops at which we help communities examine how our structure of law works and for whom. All three elected Blaine supervisors were at the school. Darlene Dutton, one of the supervisors, asked us why it seemed that a mining corporation, in this case, Penn Ridge Coal, headquartered nearly a thousand miles away in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was able to decide what happened in Blaine rather than the people who actually lived there. She then asked why the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection was actually giving coal corporations the legal authority to mine, when the devastating impacts from the mining couldn't have been more clear. These were not easy questions to answer, but they're being asked more and more as people and communities across the country are finding that they don't have the legal authority to protect the environment. In response to Darlene's questions, we talked about how our environmental laws work, how they're based on this idea that nature is property, meaning our environmental regulatory laws merely regulate the rate at which nature is used. Knowing this, it's not so surprising then to learn that our major environmental laws, like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, were passed under the authority of the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution, thus treating the environment merely as a natural resource necessary for commerce, rather than as ecosystems to be protected in their own right. Some have compared how the law treats nature as to how we once treated slaves, as a thing to be used until it was no longer. This is because nature is considered rightless, and as such, the people of Blaine Township, in trying to protect nature, found that they could not defend the rights of the ecosystems in Blaine because there were no rights to defend. Scott Weiss, chairman of the Blaine Supervisors, then asked us about something called standing, the legal requirement that you need to prove you have standing in order to go to court to protect nature, meaning you've experienced some direct harm from logging or the pollution of a river, meaning you have to prove that destruction of the environment somehow directly injures you. And then damages are awarded to you and not the ecosystem that's been destroyed. Much like a slave owner, could receive monetary damages if someone beat his slave. The slave couldn't receive damages, but the slave owner could because damage had occurred to his property. At the conclusion of the school, the Blaine supervisors asked us to help them draft a set of ordinances that would ban longwall coal mining while declaring that ecosystems have rights within Blaine Township.
passed unanimously by the supervisors in 2006, the ordinances do three things. First, they ban corporations from mining. Second, they recognize the rights of ecosystems. And third, they strip corporations of their power to override those ecosystems and those ordinances. First, in support of the ban on mining, the ordinances declare, quote, that the Department of Environmental Protections enabling of mining corporations has not been the exception in this state or nation, but a normal governmental practice, end quote. Second, the ordinances establish that ecosystems, including wetlands, rivers, and streams, possess, quote, inalienable and fundamental rights to exist and flourish within the township of Blaine, end quote. And that the people of Blaine have the ability to defend the rights of ecosystems without having to prove standing, and that damages are to be measured by harm caused to the ecosystem itself. Lastly, the ordinances strip corporations of something called corporate constitutional rights. Corporations, declared by the courts to be persons under the, the law, <laughs> enjoy First Amendment free speech rights, Fifth Amendment rights to due process, and Fourteenth Amendment rights to equal protection. At the Blaine Democracy School, the supervisors asked us why corporate constitutional rights matter. Our answer was that they matter because corporations are able to use these rights against you, against communities and laws that seek to protect the environment. Those constitutional rights guarantee that corporations can lobby Congress to let them build new coal-fired power plants. They use them to protect their right and their ability to siphon off our water or longwall coal mine. They use them to stop us from doing anything in our activism that will actually change how the system of law works. In many ways, what the people of Blaine were doing was flipping the law on its head. So instead of the law protecting the rights of property and commerce, they were using the law to protect the rights of people, communities, and nature. We talked about what happens when people start to reject the system of law they're living under. What happened when the early abolitionists began to organize? That they were declared treasonous and every effort was made to shut them down. When the suffragists fought for rights for women, that they were arrested and called radicals. How those who feel threatened by change will do everything they can to stop it. And in Blaine Township, that would be the mining corporations. And as expected last fall, two coal corporations sued Blaine Township to overturn their ordinances. They're arguing that the community doesn't have the legal authority to ban mining.
and that the ordinances violate their corporate constitutional rights. Instead of backing down or counting on the courts to save them, the people of Blaine have decided instead to up the ante. They drafted a home rule municipal charter, incorporating the rights of ecosystems and stripping corporations of constitutional rights. The Home Rule Charter constitutionalizes the ordinances, and if adopted, it will become the nation's first local sustainability constitution. Like Blaine, the town of Barnstead in central New Hampshire is rural and largely conservative. What they faced there wasn't mining of coal, but of water. Companies like Nestle are targeting communities across the country for their water. Just up the road from Barnstead, USA Springs Corporation had set its sights on the town of Nottingham. The company sought a permit from the state to withdraw over 400,000 gallons of water a day from, to bottle and sell overseas. <laughs> the people of Nottingham had fought for seven years to stop USA Springs from coming in and privatizing their water. They appealed permits to the State Department of Environmental Services. They circulated petitions. They lobbied their state legislature. They held protests, and they filed lawsuits. They did everything right through conventional environmental organizing, but somehow, they still weren't winning. Down the road, at a Barnstead Democracy School, Jack O'Neill, a member of the town select board, asked us why the state environmental agency seemed to him to be more interested in granting corporations permits to take their water than helping people in the community protect it. Turns out, as we cover in the democracy schools, there is a reason why that is. Over 100 years ago, the first regulatory agency, the Interstate Commerce Commission, was created at the request of the railroad corporations, the Walmarts of their day. As the U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney told the president of Burlington Railroad back in 1893, the agency, quote, is or can be made of great help to the railroads. It satisfied the popular clamor for government supervision, at the same time that that supervision is almost entirely nominal." End quote. <laughs> he went on to say that the agency acts as, quote, a sort of barrier between the railroad corporations and the people, end quote. As one Barnstead resident put it, it seemed as though nothing had changed in over a hundred years. To the folks in Barnstead, it seemed that if they took the path of Nottingham, it was only a matter of time before a corporation came along and took their water. Because of that, Jack O'Neill and the other select board members asked us to draft an ordinance that would ban corporations from coming in and siphoning off their water 
and which offered the best and highest protection for their aquifer. They also wanted the ordinances to strip corporations of their ability to override the community's lawmaking. We worked hand in hand with them to draft an ordinance. And like Blaine's, the Barnstead Ordinance recognizes that ecosystems have legally enforceable rights. Ban certain corporations from carrying out activities the community doesn't want. And lastly, strips corporations of constitutional protections. adopting the ordinance at a town meeting by a vote of 135 to 1. <laughs> Barnstead became the first community in the nation to ban corporations from privatizing their water. still struggling to protect their water in neighboring Nottingham soon called us. They wanted us to draft them an ordinance modeled on Barnstead's. Gail Mills, who, who with her husband Chris became leaders in the campaign to pass the ordinance, explained their decision to turn their back on the environmental regulatory system that they'd fought in for so long. She said, quote, we have to go out and make our own history and not let others define it for us." End quote. In March of last year, the people of Nottingham made history. They voted to adopt the ordinance at their town meeting, banning corporations from privatizing their water, recognizing the inalienable rights of ecosystems, and stripping corporations of constitutional rights. This work is spreading in New England as the threat from Nestle and other corporations grows. Following in the footsteps of Barnstead and Nottingham, the towns of Shapley and Newfield recently became the first communities in Maine to ban corporations from privatizing their water and to recognize the rights of ecosystems. These stories from communities in Pennsylvania, New England, and elsewhere were shared with folks at the nonprofit Pachamama Alliance, which has offices in San Francisco and Ecuador. In 2007, Ecuador began the process of drafting a new constitution. For centuries, the people and landscapes of Ecuador have been exploited by outsiders, and in recent years, it was revealed that Texaco had dumped more than 18 billion gallons of toxic wastewater into the Ecuadorian rainforest. The Pachamama Alliance invited us to Ecuador to meet with elected delegates to the Constitutional Assembly. Now, we were not experts in Ecuadorian law, but there are similarities which cut across international lines. There, like here, the law treats nature as property. We told the delegate stories of Blaine and Barnstead and how the people in those communities understood that without fundamentally changing how we treated nature and law, they could not protect it, and how we worked with them to draft and adopt new laws recognizing legally enforceable rights of ecosystems. 
We also had the opportunity to meet with the president of the Constitutional Assembly, Alberto Acosta. We thought that we'd have an uphill battle, trying to explain to this former minister of energy and mines why communities in the US were adopting laws recognizing ecosystem rights. But before we had a chance to say anything, he told us that to his mind, the law treats nature as a slave with no rights of its own. We had found a meeting of the minds in one of the most unlikely but most critical of places. We were asked to draft language for the delegates, and over a series of months, they shaped and expanded that language, and just over a year ago, the people of Ecuador approved the new constitution, becoming the very first country in the world to recognize in its constitution rights of ecosystems to, quote, exist, persist, regenerate, and evolve, end quote. We're now working with communities from Maine to California, from Virginia to Spokane, Washington. After failing to clean up the Spokane River, one of the most polluted in the nation, folks like Dr. John Osborne, a physician at Spokane's VA hospital, had given up hope that our environmental laws could protect the river. He, with others across the city, have drafted an amendment to the Spokane City Charter, which will recognize legally enforceable rights for the Spokane River. And if adopted this November, Spokane will become the first city in the U.S. to recognize rights of nature. In 1973, Professor Christopher Stone penned his famous article, Should Trees Have Standing? He explained this idea of rights of nature and why it's so hard for us to think about those without rights the right lists as possibly having rights, and why every time a movement is launched to recognize rights for the right lists, like the abolitionists did and the suffragists did, the movements and the people involved are deemed treasonous and radical. Stone writes, quote, the fact is that each time there is a movement to confer rights onto some new entity, the proposal is bound to sound odd or frightening or laughable. This is partly because until the rightless thing receives its rights, we cannot see it as anything but a thing for the use of us. Us being, of course, those of us who hold rights." End quote. The people in the communities we work with recognize that the structure of law was never intended to protect the environment, but instead to regulate its exploitation, and that they must write new structures of law, maybe writing their own constitutions, to replace it. These are not people who call themselves activists, or for that matter, environmentalists, but they recognize that in order to change the existing structure of law, a movement for nature's rights is necessary, and it's time we heard their voices and joined their cause. The Lorax asked, who speaks for the trees? <laughs> the people of Ecuador, Blaine, Barnstead, Nottingham, and a dozen other communities have answered, we do. And now I ask all of you, will you speak for the trees?
For if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Thank you.